Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you seen any yet? CVS, Rite Aid, you know, Valentine's Day stuff. You know, heart-shaped chocolate boxes and red cards. Uh, I don't get out much, but I'm guessing you're not going to have to wait very long or look very far before they show up. They might hold off until after New Year's Day. That would be a little respectful, I guess. But let's face it, nothing is as over as Christmas when it's over. The empty boxes, the pretty paper on the floor, the drained eggnog cartons, that stray tinsel from the tree, even the cat has grown tired of playing with. It's over. Hysterized. Not in here, maybe. We're still celebrating the 12 days of Christmas. But out there, not very many people are thinking much about Christmas anymore. Pretty much the whole world has moved on. And a lot of people suffer in these post-holidays. The twinkling lights, the holiday parties, the festive atmosphere, the implied permission to overindulge in treats and sweets. Altogether, it helps you forget about the problems and pressures of everyday living. And then suddenly life goes back to normal, whatever normal is, and it can feel like a letdown. One online blogger writes, I woke up on December 26 with an all-consuming wave of relentless sadness. My glittery perspective had abruptly faded. She described Christmas as something akin to putting a small Band-Aid on a gaping wound. It's a, it's a good point in a way because after Christmas, all your problems are still there waiting for you. Problems have more patience with us than we have with our problems. They're happy to just hang around until we decide to deal with them. On top of that, she writes, I can't zip up my jeans, my face feels puffy, and I can see my cheeks and my peripheral vision. Oh, and I'm broke. Wow. Um, maybe I'm going to, I have to turn my mic off. We're having sound system issues. Maybe we need to see Valentine's Day cards and candy already. Um, it might be more of a lift than, than sitting down to write your New Year's resolutions about all the things you don't like about yourself. But what is she missing about Christmas? That it doesn't end on December 25th. It just keeps on giving as long as we, we you keep on believing in it. The Christ child grew up and redeemed us from slavery to sin. And his perfect life, his atoning death and glorious resurrection continue to offer us the gift of a fresh start through forgiveness that's ours by faith in the Christ child. But we forget about that. And we lose our Christmas focus. We're we're uh, distracted by the same homeless people on the freeway, freeway uh, ramps that, that were there before, uh, looking for a handout or hopefully a hand up. You know, worries about health care and taxes and jobs, whatever it might be. We start feeling like we're right back to where we left off, to where we were before the holidays. And then you come to church this morning expecting to be all uplifted and you get a gospel lesson about a senseless slaughter. But that's... Really, just one more exclamation point to remind us how badly our sin-filled world needed a Savior and how grateful we should be for the one God sent us. That's uplifting, but the story's still sad. In our Gospel lesson this morning, the wise men have already come and they've just left. Christmas for Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus has been put away for as long as two years already. The wise men stopped off in Jerusalem to ask King Herod where they might find this new king of the Jews, and he went ballistic. Uh, what's helpful to know here is that almost 30 years earlier, Herod had captured, recaptured Jerusalem for Rome and became its sole ruler, assuming his title as king over the city as well as the whole surrounding area of Judea, something he had before. 
uh, was actually awarded to him by the uh, Roman Senate. It's a little complicated, but uh, it was an important piece of land. It was an important point for, uh, strategically for travel between Rome and, and Egypt. And it was quite a feather in his cap, so it was important to him. And Herod's own wise guys tell him then that the prophecies pointed to Bethlehem as the place of Jesus' birth, and so that's where he sends them. He didn't know if he would still be there after all this time or not, but where else could they start? And then he asked them, that's why maybe why he asked them, saying, you know, when you find him, come back and let me know where you found him so that I can go and worship him too. Of course, that was never his attention. Truth was, he was having an anxiety attack over even the thought of a rival ruler in his own backyard, even if it was just a, a baby. They're warned off by God in a dream to return home by another way, and then God sends an angel to Joseph in a dream, warning him to take his little family and flee to Egypt because Herod was looking to destroy his new stepson. Joseph heard the message loud and clear, and he acted. He and Mary threw together their meager belongings, and along with the baby Jesus, uh, headed south out of the wicked king's reach. Egypt had been a place of sanctuary for God's people once before, before it became a brutal prison. As long as Herod was on the hunt for Jesus, Egypt was really the only safe place from his reach. The Holy Family had become refugees. Now, the wicked side of Herod, one that, uh, especially as he grew older and sicker, um, has been well documented by historians. A veteran of many of Herod's uh, wars once dared to tell him, the army hates your cruelty. Have a care. There isn't a common soldier who doesn't side with your sons, and many of the officers openly curse you. Enraged, Herod rewarded the old soldier's honesty by having him stretched out on a rack and tortured until he sobbed out meaningless confessions and accusations of treason. Macrobius, one of the last pagan historians in the city of Rome, wrote in 400 AD that when it was heard that as part of the slaughter of boys up to two years old, Herod, king of the Jews, had ordered his own son to be killed, Emperor Augustus remarked, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son. Herod had been raised as a Jew, and so he would never kill a pig. Matthew tells us that once he realized he'd been tricked by the, the wise men, it was too much for him to handle, that his jealousies and his suspicions had already been aroused, and there was nothing that was going to put him off from his plan to eliminate any threat this new so-called royal would hold. His plan was to eradicate every baby boy in Bethlehem and the surrounding area, if that's what it would take to get at this, this one child in his sight. And the order was given, and the order was carried out. You know, we want so badly for the Christmas story to end differently, you know, happily ever after. But the real story is so, so brutal that, that many people simply ignore this part of it. Uh, Mary and Joseph didn't have that option, did they? It was their life. They had to live it. They had to deal with it. And if we're going to be honest with the, with the parts of the Christmas story we love, like the, like the, the gospel from Luke chapter 2, Christmas Eve gospel, um, then we're going to have to deal with the difficult parts of it as well. There are some who deal with what has been called the slaughter of the innocents by simply denying it ever happened. After all, they say there's no account of this massacre apart from Matthew's gospel. Maybe he simply made this story up because it fit in with what he was trying to say. Surely if all the boys under two in Bethlehem had been killed, somebody else would have noticed. Somebody else would have recorded it. But the other side of that is that Bethlehem was a very tiny village, and the body count couldn't have been all that high. And even news like this would have been overshadowed by the evil, twisted mind of Herod himself at, at this point in his life. You know, one time he'd been a great builder, 
He backed the expansion of the temple. He, that was his project, the temple in Jerusalem. He did it not only to gain favor with the Jews that he ruled, but also to be kind of his legacy, to leave behind. Um, he did it with, by overtaxing people. Um, he did it and made the Pharisees mad because he wouldn't include everything they wanted. He did it and made the Sadducees mad because he imported some builders, some priests from, from uh, other areas besides the city. But he put a 1,000 priests to work. They actually got the temple building itself done in a little over a year, but it took a couple of decades to get all the surrounding outbuildings and courts and stuff built. Um, he built the harbor at Caesarea. He brought water into the city. But now he degenerated into a brutal ruler to the extreme, right up until the moment of his death. That's where Matthew goes next. In verse 19, Herod died. And he says an angel appeared to Joseph again, this time telling him to go home. What he, what he leaves out, to, he, what's between the lines is what uh, historians have recorded uh, and well. Um, in fact, there's no more terrible scene in history, really, than the dying and the, the death of, of Herod the, the Great. Gone were his slim good looks. He was coarse. He was uh, heavy. Uh, most of his hair had fallen out. Three of his front teeth were broken off. Tormented by, by the horrors of remorse, he would scream out for his beloved life, wife, uh, Miriam, and his, his son, uh, both long since murdered at Herod's own order. Toward the end, he was in the grip of some foul, repulsive disease. His legs had become like swollen stumps, his ankles nine inches thick. He was covered with sores and full of uh, humiliating wounds that, that were just stomach-churning to, to witness. He couldn't even eat without agony. In fact, his guards had to be rotated frequently because no one could stand the stench emanating from his rotting stomach. His breath is described as uh, smelling like a charnel house, a repository where corpses and, and bones are stored. Herod the Great was literally a dead man walking. Death, death worked on his carcass as if he were already in the grave. All his enemies seemed to be, his crimes seemed to be revisiting themselves, this time on his 70-year-old body. And yet even as he groaned in agony on his deathbed, his mind still raced with thoughts of murders. He knew that the Jews would, would uh, want to celebrate and rejoice at the news of his death, and so he made plans accordingly. He summoned his mercenaries, men who had already killed many of the Jewish leaders over the years for him, and he told them to go out into all the, the cities and the, the towns and, 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 and arrest all the leaders and round them up and put them in jail and guard them. The prisoners were to be fed and given uh, the comforts that were necessary until the day of his death. And then the guards were supposed to kill them all. When I die, he screamed, the Jews may not mourn me, but they will mourn. And just five days before his death, his miseries were lightened by a letter he received from the emperor, Caesar Augustus, authorizing the exile or the execution of his son Antipater, who was suspected of plotting to poison the king. And the father wasted no time in ordering his son's death. And finally, the end came. Herod was dead. He'd reigned for about 40 years. Uh, Salome, his sister, along with her husband, were supposed to signal the mercenaries to murder the Jews they'd now gathered together in the, Jer in the uh, Jericho Hippodrome. Instead, they opened the doors and set the captives free. Uh, down in Egypt, Joseph had his own marching orders. It was time to return to the land of his fathers, but where should he settle? See, when he got into Israel, he began hearing news that filled him with, with, with fresh fear. Herod's son, Archelaus, was now on the throne in Judea. 
The rest of his realm would be parceled out to his other sons, Philip and Antipas, um, an arrangement that had already been approved by Caesar. Archelaus, who had spent the night of his father's death out carousing with his friends, inaugurated his reign by slaughtering 3,000 Jews in the temple at the time of the Passover. They demanded punishment for those who had committed atrocities during the, the reign of his father. Rightly afraid of Archelaus, Joseph was hesitant about returning to his previous home. And once again, he's visited in a dream and confirmed in his fears. And so instead of returning to Bethlehem in Judea, he went back to Nazareth in Galilee, where he'd be outside of Archelaus' uh, realm of authority. A Matthew, whose gospel was, is filled with references to Old Testament prophecies, probably because he was writing especially to the Jews, the Jewish readers, says that he was, uh, this was to fulfill the prophecy that Jesus should be called a Nazarene. So there's a lot more to the Christmas story in our Lord's early years than just shepherds and angels. And you kind of get the idea of the, the, the picture, the brutal world that Jesus was born into, a world that desperately needed a Savior. But where do we take it from here? Well, think about it. The story's filled with promises made good and, and promises filled with hope, just the kind of things we need to take into a new year. January is typically a time of new beginnings, of resolutions. And I hope you're thinking about some of your own baggage that may be holding you back, things that might be, you know, maybe need to be discarded in order to, to move forward and make a new beginning. One of the things we, 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 we know about God is that he doesn't change. And so in addition to his wonderful promises in Scripture, we can look back at what he's done in the past to reasonably conclude what we can expect from him in the future. In these modern times of constant, almost instantaneous change, it's really a comfort to, to know that through it all, at least God remains the same. One of the things he did and has always done is to get involved in the lives of his people. But Paul writes today to the Galatian believers that by faith in God's Son, they've been adopted as sons of God themselves and therefore heirs to eternal life. God is a personal God who's acted and continues to act in history. Now think about the Jewish Christians who first read Matthew's Gospel as these these things were circulated through the early church. Um, this story would have reminded them of another story, a story familiar to them uh, about the birth of another child some 1,500 years earlier, a child whose life was also threatened, but who also survived and became a savior for his people. Moses was born in another time and place when another king, this one Pharaoh of Egypt, had issued a decree that all newborn Hebrew baby boys were to be put to death as a way of, 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 uh, to control the growing slave population. Moses was saved as well, again, by God's intervention and the faith and ingenuity of his parents who hid him, and then the daughter of Pharaoh who eventually adopted him as her own. In time, Moses became a great leader who would lead his people out of slavery in Egypt, just as Jesus would break our bond of slavery to sin. As they read about Joseph taking his young family to Egypt as refugees, they would have recalled the Old Testament Joseph, who likewise brought his family to Egypt to save them from famine, where the people lived as welcomed refugees and then eventually prisoners and slaves until the day they left with Moses. God acts in history. He acted through Moses to save his people, and he acted through Joseph, and in Jesus he was still acting to save his people, but this time he'd come in person. Our God in Jesus, true God and true man, knows what it's like to be homeless and hounded, to, 
be besieged with life's troubles. As the child Jesus narrowly escaped his brush with death early on, uh, God was there. As Jesus experienced life without a home to return to, God was there. And so God understands and is with us through our trials today. He knows what it means to be human and to suffer. He knows the difficulties and the challenges of living in a fallen world, a world where sin reigns. Suffering and trials are a part of Jesus' life from the very beginning, even back to the night when there was no room for him in the end. Right up until the moment he gave up his spirit as his arms were stretched out on a cross for us, Jesus identified with us, his creation, and also his children. God rejoices and he weeps and he suffers right along with us as we look forward to the day when we're set free from this, this temporary world to take our place in the permanent, eternal, perfect home already waiting for us in heaven. He promises through the prophet Isaiah, Fear not, I have redeemed you. I've summoned you by name. You are mine. Now, Christmas may be over, but the message of Christmas must never be forgotten. Now, the year 2020, like all the other years, will hold its tribulations and its triumph, its, its suffering and its joy. But just like every other year in human history, we don't need to face the new year with fear because there's nothing so fresh as old news that God is already there. Amen. Now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.